Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. This is a bit of a dangerous sermon, which is hard. Normally, if I, if I just chose what I was preaching on, I would probably just skip this altogether if I'm being entirely transparent. But that's why I preach through a book, because God's ideas are far better than my ideas. They're more plentiful, and, uh, and there's what God wanted to communicate to us. Uh, but I'm concerned that someone here is going to hear what I did not say. Because here in the text today, we see God afflicting people, like directly. God chooses to afflict the Philistines, we see. And what should we do when God afflicts us? The danger of this is that someone here is going to be suffering in life, and they're going to say, I must be afflicted by God because I have pain in my life, because my family has pain, because I'm suffering. That's not what the text says, and that's not what I'm saying. I think most of our affliction is caused by two things in this world. One is the natural consequences for our actions, right? If you tag police cars, right, you go around town and tag police cars, and you get arrested, that's not God afflicting you. That is you suffering the natural consequences of your actions, right? Uh, so, so I think a lot of it is we suffer the consequences of our actions. But I think the other reason we, we suffer affliction is we live in this fallen world that has been tainted by sin. Whether you sin, someone else sinned, or no one you know has sinned, the entire world is not functioning the way it should. Nature doesn't work the way it should because it has been tainted by sin. Our bodies don't work the way they should because they have been tainted by our sin, and we groan and await for King Jesus to return to renew the earth and to bring in the new heaven and new earth so that no longer are we living under the curse of sin. And it might not even be directly something that you have done, but the world is corrupted by sin. And so oftentimes we just suffer because we suffer. But in some cases, there are times where God afflicts us because of direct actions that we have taken, direct sins. And that is horrifying. It's scary. It's frightening. What should we do when God afflicts us? And also, how in the world do you know if it's God afflicting you if you're suffering? We'll get to that. So as we continue our journey through 1 Samuel, we saw last week that the Ark of God had been captured by the Philistines. Now, you remember the Ark of the Covenant? God is not, this isn't an idol from Israel like the other nations had around them. They have idols of their God. But God commanded Israel to con construct this Ark and that he promised he would meet Israel at the Ark. Israel tried to use the ark as some sort of talisman, thinking that they could force God to give them victory against the Philistines, and God said, no, 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 you, you don't ask me to get on board with your plans. You get on board with my plans. And so God allowed Israel to be defeated, and he allowed the ark to be captured by the Philistines. Now, the ark of the covenant had very specific rules to be to be handled and to be followed. Uh, it was only to be carried by the Levites, the priests, the descendants of Aaron, and they were never, ever, ever supposed to touch it. You can see that there are holes on the side of the ark that you would put poles between, and the sons of Aaron would come and they would carry the ark. So they were never to touch it, certainly never to open it up and, and look inside of it. They were supposed to treat the ark with reverence. 
But the Philistines don't know that because they're Philistines. So we pick up the story in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So what's happening here is in, in the ancient world, when armies went to war, they thought that one, one army's God was fighting against the other army's God, and whoever won, their God was more mighty. And so the Philistines won, so they said, our God Dagon is stronger than the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, the one who causes things to be the way they are. Our God has defeated him. So they bring the Ark of God, and they put it in their own temple to Dagon in a subservient position to show, hey, Dagon has defeated Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Uh, Dagon, we don't know exactly what he, he looked like. Uh, some have him kind of as this fish-creature hybrid thing. Other scholars think he was more like an Aquaman guy with, uh, with scaled armor. Uh, it doesn't matter. Who knows? But he was this, this false god that they worshipped. This, uh, this is disheartening for Israel as they're looking at this. Has our god been defeated? In fact, this is something that we American Christians feel often like, oh my goodness, we're, we're, we're losing the culture battle. Everything's going off to the end. You know, Time Magazine 1966 had this cover, Is God Dead? Oh, wow. And Christians are like, oh man, what are we, we going to do? I don't know. What's going to happen? And then in 2009, the decline and fall of Christian America was in Newsweek. Wow. And then, and then today, contemporarily, there are no more magazines, so I don't have a thing to put up there. <laughs> Print has died. Uh, but the angst still, is still there. Oh, my goodness. There's so much Christian angst, right? We talk about the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the, the people who have no religious affiliation, and Christianity is dying, and oh, my goodness, it's, it's the end. And look what's happening over in Europe, the average person who goes to church is like 68 years old and getting older. If that's the average age, there's no future of the church in Europe, and that's going to happen in America. Is God dead? What do we have to do? Oh, we have this angst, like, wow, has God been defeated? That's what Israel must have felt like. And the Philistines on the other end are like, yes, he has. We've defeated him. Verse 3. It says, and when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of Yahweh, and the head of Dagon was, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Wow. So you have to put yourself in the Philistine shoes. Here they're like, hey, we had this, yeah, this victory. And in their mind, when they made an idol, the, their God inhabited the idol. And, and so <laughs> the first day, it's like face down as if it's worshiping the ark. Like, oh, that's weird. Yeah, maybe, maybe it was the wind. I don't know. So they put it back up. The next day, in case they didn't get the message, its head's chopped off, its arms are chopped off, and it's just trunk is left. And they're like, oh, Something's happening here. Now, for us, it's like, oh, a statue fell over. They broke a vase. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, but, but it would be like contemporary, uh, contemporaneously if all of a sudden there was like a megachurch that was exploded. That would be all over the news. What just happened? That's what it was like for the Philistines. They just destroyed our church. Or it would be like if there was a head of state executed live on TV. 
or on YouTube. Just devastating. What's happening? They don't understand it. And they're starting to get scared. Verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So what do they do? They play hot potato. They sent, and verse 8, so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they go to another capital city. They brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron and the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around the ark of God to us, of Israel, to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Wow. So all of a sudden they realize they are not in control. God is afflicting them directly for their disrespect of who he is, for thinking that they were Lord, or at least their false God was God over the God of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the one who causes things to be the way they are, the one true God, the one true King. And so everywhere the ark goes to to make this point, tumors break out, right? And typically tumors don't just pop into existence. They're not like zits. They take time to develop over and over. But man, this is a plague breaking out. God is afflicting them. What should we do when God afflicts us? See, the Philistines, their first thought was uh, kind of, this might date me a little bit, but it's kind of like a Monty Python and the Holy Grail kind of battle, battle strategy. Whenever King Arthur and his knights got into trouble, what did they do? Run away, right? They just, get rid of it, hot potato, get rid of it, run away, get away. In fact, uh, there are, uh, there's some regions in the country that have higher cancer rates than others. I, I had a, a family member who lived in one of these places with his family, and he said he realized, he was talking to his coworkers, and they're just like, everybody's got cancer, right? Mom's got cancer, dad's got cancer, grandpa died of cancer. Grandma's dying of cancer. My aunt's got cancer. My uncle's got cancer. And then they do a quick Google search and find out the cancer results of the area they're living in are high and astronomical. And what do you do in that point? You go, well, let's try and figure this out so that we can avoid that, right? So they try to figure it out and can't figure it out. Nobody knows what's causing it. What do they do? They go away. They moved. They took the whole family. They said, we're not, we, we don't know. They found another job and they moved. And that's what you do if you have the, the financial means to do so. They ran away. But you can't run away from God. What should we do when God afflicts us because of our sin? Chapter 6, verse 1 says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place. And they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return him a guilt offering. 
Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and all of your lords. So the tumors were so bad, they didn't even mention the mice. Have you ever, like a mouse, like, okay, I saw a mouse. That's kind of gross. Have you ever seen like a whole bunch of mice in a place, like open up a cupboard and they're just there? Like, oh, it's awful. Like just, it's like gross. Uh, Google the rat problem in Manhattan, right? Just... Look for videos. Uh, it's, it's rough. It's rough. Oh. But the, the tumors were so bad, they didn't even mention it until just now. Verse 5, so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh Harden their hearts after he had dealt severely with them. Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the carts, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold which you are returning to them as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that this is not by God's hand that struck us. It has happened to us by coincidence. All right, so there's a lot here, but, but first of all, they know the story of Egypt. They don't perfectly understand it. They don't know all the theology behind it, but they know that Israel was held captive in Egypt, and then when Moses came and commanded in the name of God, to let his people go, Pharaoh, instead of letting his people go, hardened his heart. And what did God do when Pharaoh hardened his heart? He sent plague after plague, discipline after discipline, affliction after affliction, until he made it so bad Pharaoh had to let him go. The the, the Philistines know this story. And these priests, these pagan priests, these priests of a false god, they have enough sense to say, Let's not be like Egypt, because if we harden our heart, God's discipline will continue and get worse and worse and worse, and we will find ourselves in the same position, having to make the same decision, having to send over a fortune, and many more of us will be afflicted. Um, I think that was just really telling uh, of, of what they could see and they could observe with the power of God. Uh, you can, in your own lives, in our lives, we can see people harden their hearts to God. Maybe some of you have lived through periods where you're like, I don't care. I don't care. I know this is sin. I, 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 know, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I don't care. I want to do what I want to do. I'm the God of my own life. You can't tell me what to do. And so you harden your heart. I have a family member I'm close with, and he is very far away from the Lord. And so I, you know, I, I want to maintain relationships, so I don't bring up, I can't. If I bring up Christianity, if I bring up anything spiritual, it is always like a knockdown, drag down fight. So I don't even go there. So a number of years ago, I, uh, when the kids were younger, the older two were younger, uh, I sent him a text, Happy Easter, right? With the little kids. Oh, how cute. Look how cute they are, right? Now look, 
There is absolutely nothing religious about this text. Absolutely nothing. In fact, the very term Easter carries zero religious implication, the word itself. So much so that some of you here in this room refuse to call it Easter. You say, it's not Easter, it's Resurrection Day, right? There's absolutely nothing. I, I, I'll call it Easter, don't worry. Um, for those of you who want to call it Resurrection Day, I'll call that too. Um, but, but there's nothing wrong. I mean, it's just cute little kids holding buddies. Oh, happy, happy Easter. And you want to see someone hardening their heart almost immediately. And I'm sorry to send this to you. This is grotesque. He sent this back to me. Happy Zombie Jesus Day. You can see someone hardening their heart against God. So I, of course, now I'm like, oh man, I did not expect this. So I texted back this picture by, uh, of Thomas, of Doubting Thomas by Caravaggio. And I said, personally, I like the Caravaggio work better, right? <laughs> and then our text went downhill from there. I'll read it to you. He said, yeah, religion equal totally creepy. Sorry, LOL. And I wrote, if this world is all that there is, life is utterly hopeless, utterly pointless. This is not the way things ought to be. And he wrote, I think this is exactly how this world was meant to be slash develop. Evolutionary principles at work. Not saying it ought to be, but this is what genetics gave us. And I wrote, I'm not trying to be argumentative. I'm asking this question honestly. What happens when we die? And he wrote, seriously? I'm not engaging in this reductionist type of argument. And I wrote, I'm not arguing. I really am curious about what your thoughts on death are. We all die. Then, after a long time of no answer, I sneezed. And I just was like, I wrote, I said, regardless, I love you no matter what. Absolutely nothing, nothing, no philosophy or ideological divide could change that. Nothing was written back. You can see someone hardening their hearts. How should we respond to God's affliction? What should we do when God afflicts us because of our sins? And the Philistines here are saying, let's not be like Egypt and harden our hearts because it's going to get worse if we do. Let's send the ark back. And it's kind of interesting the way they do it. They're not 100% sure that this is Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel. They're not 100% sure. So what their plan is, is they say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going we're to take these cows. We're going to take milk cows, which you don't use for plowing fields or carrying wagons. What do you use them for? Good job. Most of us aren't farmers, so I know sometimes that's complex. But <laughs> So you use them for milk. They've never had a yoke. They've never carried a wagon. Take them, separate their babies from them, and as their babies are, yeah, that is not the sound of a baby cow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> as, their, as their cows are bleeding for them, no, that's, that's sheep, whatever. Uh, as their cows are, are crying for them, or as their calves are crying for them, put them in their home, lock them away. They're making noise. And then take a yoke and take these two milk cows, put, put yokes on them. They, they're not used to this device. Hitch the wagon next to them. Put the ark on the wagon. They don't know how they're supposed to handle it. They're Philistines. Put, put the ark on the wagon. Put the, the, the gold on the wagon. And then see where the wagon goes. If it does what we expect it to do and hear it babies, its babies crying and either doesn't move because it's like, I don't know what to do right now, or it goes back to its babies, then we know this is all coincidence and just, you know, it's life. But if it does what we don't expect it to do and it heads towards Israel, 
and it goes to Beth Shemek, we know that this was from the hand of God and that he has accepted our repentance. It's a pretty smart plan. It's a pretty brilliant plan. I mean, can you, like, so, so here's what happens. This kind of begins the second story. Verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And as they put, I keep thinking, I'm like, I got to redeem myself and make a crying calf sound, but I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I don't have the confidence. <laughs> just, just keep going, Nathan. Verse 11, and they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went, lowing as they went, right? So their babies are crying behind them, and here these cows are, moo, I do know what cows make, moo, right? They're just happy. They're just going along, all happy cows. Must be from California. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh, these are Israelites, were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Uh, sorry, cows. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. Okay, don't miss that, that detail. They knew how to handle the Ark of the Covenant of God, right? The, the Philistines, they didn't. They just put it on the cart and let it go. But as they saw the Ark of the Covenant of God come, they got Levites to come put some poles into the pole rings and to carry it down respectfully. So they, they, they understood. They got it. They took down the Ark of the Lord in the box that was beside it, and it in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Okay, so now this is kind of a second story. This is Israel's perspective. Here they are, and they're like, man, seven months, we haven't seen the ark. And all of a sudden, they see this very bizarre sight. What's happening? And the ark of the covenant of God, along with a lot of gold, is there. Wow. I mean, their excitement must have been incredible. I can't think of a really good modern analogy, so bear with me, if you will. Uh, imagine that you had a beloved pet. Uh, let's call him, let's say it's a pug, and you call them Pugsley Puggington III. So <laughs> Pugsley Puggington III one day ran out, and uh, you couldn't find him. So if anyone's ever lost a pet like that, you know how horrible it is. You're like, oh my goodness, you're looking for this pet. So you're looking everywhere. After a day, man, you're frantic. Two days, it's like, oh, no. After a week, you're like, oh, man. Did somebody steal him, pick him up? Did he get eaten by coyotes? You know, what happened? After a month, you're like, oh, he's gone. He's not coming back. After two months, you're not even, you're like, your grief is over. Three months go by. Now you get Pugsley Puggington the fourth, right, to replace him. And it goes on. And now, seven months go by, you're at work, you go out into the parking lot, and all of a sudden, you look down at the parking lot, and there's these two ostriches walking down the, the parking lot towards you, and they, they're carrying a litter behind them, and on the litter is Pugsley Puggington third. What? Yes! I mean, that, that level of excitement, like, 
what am I seeing? I, I mean, that's what Israel must have felt like. This doesn't happen. This is so bizarre. They'd already given up hope. They've, they've given up lost. Maybe God's abandoned us. And now the Ark of the Covenant of God comes back to them. Their excitement is just through the roof. And they know this represents Yahweh, the God of Israel. God promised to meet us here at the Ark of the Covenant. So get the Levites. And the Levites who were there, they, they came and they brought the poles and, and they brought the Ark down respectfully and they made sacrifices to God right then and there. And it gets better. Verse 17 and 18, it goes in great detail about the, the amount of gold that they get. Wow, not only is God, God, God hasn't abandoned us, not only do we have victory, but we get money too. That's good. But then verse 19 happens. And it says, And God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Wow. The implication here is that they, they looked inside the ark, which they were not supposed to do. They all knew that they weren't supposed to do it. And it was an important detail that the Levites took the ark down respectfully because they knew how to treat the ark and how not to treat the ark. And the irony is, is not even the pagan Philistines with their false belief and their false gods treated the ark of God with such contempt. Yes, they did not know that they had to carry it a certain way and only certain people were allowed to carry it with poles. But not even the Philistines dared to open up. And God's own people, what do they do? They go, hey, let's open up the ark and see. And what does God do? He strikes down 70 people, 70 men. What should we do when God afflicts us? All right, the Philistines, they were afflicted by God. And after a while, they said, okay, all right, all right we repent. We repent. And they send the ark back with restitution. Here, Israel, God's own people, they know the rules. They know God. They know his character. They sinned. God afflicts them terribly. How do they respond? What do they do? Verse 20, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. So the people of Beth Shemesh, they started out good. They said, who's able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. Yeah, who can stand? Who can actually stand face to face to God and match his character, match his goodness? No one can. They said he's holy. Holy means set apart. God is not us. He's not. But then the second part, and they say, whom shall he go up away from us? And they say, we want nothing to do with this terrifying, scary God. We don't. So they send to another neighboring town and say, take the ark. We want nothing to do with God. How should we respond to God's affliction? What should we do when God afflicts us because of our sin? When God afflicts us because of our sins, we should repent. This is the only time you're going to ever hear me say this. Be like the Philistines 
(laughs) and not like ancient Israel. The Philistines, the pagan Philistines, who didn't have full knowledge of the Lord God Almighty, they at least understood this is a holy God. We have violated him. We need to repent of this terrible thing we've done. Israel, who should have known better, when God afflicts them, instead of repenting, what do they do? They say, we don't want anything to do with you, God. We're out of here. Just just, just send God along. We're, we're just done. We're done with you, God. We want nothing to do with you. That's like us today, though, isn't it? Oftentimes when we're involved with sin or life doesn't go our way, we finally say, you know what? I'm walking away from you, God. Here's what happens, I think, oftentimes. What often happens is we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, right? We feel burdened with our sin, and we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior because we want our sins to be forgiven, and we feel so full and free, and we're like, yes, I've been forgiven of my sin. And then we take Jesus, and we put him in our room with a bunch of other idols, just like the Philistines did. Now you're like, well, wait a minute, I don't have any idols, you know, I don't have anything. But John Calvin said that the human heart is a factory of idols. We just make idols naturally. An idol is anything you elevate above the importance and status of God. You can make anything into an idol. Bad things, certainly, right? So you could take addictions and turn them into an idol. Uh, you could take, uh, uh, you could take uh, any, any kind of sin that you want, your violence, your hatred, your anger, that can, that can become more important than God. Anything can become an idol, but you could take good things and make them an idol, right? Sports teams can become an idol. Uh, uh, sport, um, you can make your family into an idol and say that is the most important thing, more important than God. You can take your job and your career, which are good things, and make them into an idol. You can make anything into an idol. And I think far too often what we do is we come and, and we naturally do this. We take Jesus and we put him in our, in our little idol room over here, and we think that Jesus is here to serve us rather than us to serve Jesus. And what does God do? God, because he is our loving heavenly father, he doesn't want us to become idolaters, and he know that, knows that it hurts us when we don't have a right relationship with him. And so what does God do? Sometimes he sends affliction. He puts discipline because he's our loving heavenly father. And he gives us a little bit of discipline. And more often than not, what do we do? We go, I don't want to change. I love all these things too much. I don't want to end this relationship, even though I know it's not pleasing to God. I don't want to change jobs, even though I know it's not pleasing to God the way I'm operating right now. I don't want to stop this addiction because I like it and it's too hard and I don't want to put in the work. I don't want to. And so God as a heavenly father continually says, no, it's not helping you. It's not healthy. Because guys, sin, God doesn't hate sin because he's a killjoy. He hates sin because sin kills us. And so he puts the pressure on and on and on until we finally go, okay, all right, it's enough. Sin isn't worth it. And what God is preventing us from doing with his affliction is far greater than what's going to happen to us if we continue to persist in our sin. But too often what happens is when this, this, this loving discipline that hurts, when God puts that loving discipline on us, far too, too often what happens is we are like ancient Israel in this, Beth Shemek, and we say, you know what? I'm done. If you don't let me live the way I want to live, God, I'm out of here. And we walk away from God. We walk away from church. We walk away from his people. We're like, well, I, I guess I'm not going to be a hypocrite and come to church anymore. Here's the thing with that word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy literally means an actor. If you come to church and you're like, hey, I've got my whole life together and I'm spiritually good and everything's great, right? You're a hypocrite 
because we all know that our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the face of God. If you come to church and you say, you know what? I am a sinner in need of the grace of God. I am a person who has believed in Jesus. I don't have my life together. I struggle with sin, and I need Jesus to transform me. I need to take on the character of Jesus. I need the character of God to overcome me on a regular basis. I don't have my life together. I need Jesus. You're not a hypocrite if you come to church that way. You're only a hypocrite if you come and you pretend like, oh, I'm holier than thou. Don't walk away. Again, this is the only time you're going to hear me say this. Don't be like ancient Israel. Be like the Philistines. It sounds so weird coming out of my mouth. Because God is not afflicting us. He's not putting discipline into our lives to crush us. He's not putting discipline into our life because he hates us. He's doing it because he loves us. Because he knows how much that sin will destroy our lives. And he will put just the amount of pressure that he needs to put onto us till we finally say, it is not worth it, I repent. And then he restores us. How do you know that God's afflicting you though? Here's the thing, if you are going through pain, if you are going through difficulties, what I suggest you do is get on your hands and knees and pray and say, God, is this affliction from something, from some sin that I'm doing in my life or something I'm aware of or something I'm not aware of? And if he brings something to your mind, repent. And if you need to make restitution to someone because it's something you have done to someone else, make restitution to that person. Go and apologize to that person. Say, how can I make this up to you? How can I I restore this, what I've taken from you, what I've done wrong? If God does not bring something to your mind, then let it go. And ask for God to give you grace as you go through this pain and this difficulty that you're here. Don't live with false shame and false guilt. Remember, we are Christians. We know more of a full story than ancient Israel did here. We know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to purify us from all unrighteousness. And so if you feel affliction, if you feel discipline, you're like, I don't know what's going on. Maybe I'm feeling, God, is this something that I've done? If he brings something to your mind, if the Holy Spirit brings something to your mind, repent. And if he doesn't, move on. But here's the thing with both of those. If he does bring something to your mind, it's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. If he doesn't bring something to your mind, you're not going through this suffering because he hates you. It's because he loves you in spite of what's happening. We need to realize that even when God afflicts us, it is his love reaching down to us to say, I love you enough to stop you from doing harm to yourself and others. That's how much I care. So when you feel afflicted by God, choose to repent. We should not be people who run away from God. When you sin, don't run away from God. Run towards him. Let's pray. Father, we're about to take communion together. And it it fits perfectly with this text because we understand that through Jesus' broken body and shed blood, we have forgiveness and restoration. Father, I I fully have observed that in the Western American church, repentance is so under-preached. We'll talk about anything else, but, but we don't want to repent. Maybe you repent once, and then you come to faith in Jesus, and that's it. But Father, our lives as Christians, we realize we are terribly flawed. They should be characterized by one of repentance to you and repentance to others when we do wrong. 
And so, Father, we come together, we come to this table, and we take communion together because we know that we need you every hour. We know that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we also know that the free gift of God is eternal life. We also know that when we confess our sins, that you purify us from all unrighteousness. And when you look at us, you no longer see us defined by our sins, but you see us defined by the righteousness, the goodness, the beauty of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King. So, Father, I, help, I, I pray that you'll help us today. I pray, Father, for people who are here, they are suffering, their loved ones are suffering. I pray, Father, that if it's not because of any kind of discipline that you're doing in their life, that they do not feel false guilt and false shame. And I pray, Father, for those here, if they're suffering and they're, they're under your hand of discipline for something, that as they confess their sins to you, they do not continue to live with guilt and shame in their life, but instead they live in the freedom and the purpose that they have in King Jesus. They live in the beauty and the freedom of forgiveness that comes from Jesus freely. I pray, Father, that just in this moment, you will search our hearts. If there is any sin or unrighteousness, may we confess it now so that we might be restored and receive the forgiveness and the breath of fresh air of the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbctarrytown.org.